Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The Murder of Rita Hester. Saturday, November 28th, 1998, Alston, Massachusetts. Warning, the following content you're about to listen to will contain evidence of misgendering. Listening discretion is advised. Well, the Transcendent Day of Remembrance started um, after the, the murder of Rita Hester, who was a transgender woman of color. So since then, each over 200 cities uh, come together to commemorate and remember those have been, who have lost their lives um, as uh, victims to violence, but also remembering those who are victims that are living. And now we draw at least uh, somewhere between 250, 300 people every year. Really, you know, when I think about, we're talking about transgender day of remembrance, and I'm talking about being a transgender woman and being a victim of violence is... Um, that until, and this is just, I'm very passionate about this, and it's always moving, until we set an example, until we become um, somewhat of a protected community or protected species, like endangered, because this is what we are right now, and this way it looks like in society, and we need to be protected. I think when you allow members of the community to get away with, with murdering and assaulting transgender women, constantly, then you tell them that it's okay, and it's, it's a population that we don't care about. It's just like, people in the community don't support us, so we need to do what we can as a community and protect ourselves. And, um, I think we do a fine job, but some people just don't have, just, just don't have love for the population of people. I tell folks that I'm not afraid to say that, you know, first of all, I came out when I was like nine or ten years old, and I was in a very despairing situation with the family, religious family, and it was not accepted, uh, went through a lot of trauma, and at 13 or 14, I was actually literally homeless, and I was forced out into the world of, of survival, and I'm no, not afraid to ever say that, yes, substance abuse, doing commercial sex work, which is prostitution, I use it in such a light way. And it's substance abuse. And being homeless is a part of my history. And I think that because of my rich 
my history in terms of my experiences, it has afforded me the ability to be the best that I can be in terms of helping other people. But people need to understand that that we are human and we are part of this community. We're here to stay. It's Saturday, November 28th, 1998. Just two days after Thanksgiving in the suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, Alston, Massachusetts. 34-year-old African-American transgender female, Rita Hester had just gotten home from a bar around 6 p.m. that Saturday. And she was supposed to meet a really good friend of hers by the name of Brenda Wynn. Um, the two had been friends for a long period of time. They had spent earlier that day um, watching some TV, um, watching figure skating on television. And the two had also played racquetball um, in Alston. And then the two were gonna also later meet at Brenda's house around four o'clock to go to a bar together. Well, Brenda wasn't able to make it to the bar, but nonetheless, Rita did go to the bar um, from around her home. And the bar itself, um, which is no longer there, she went to the bar and she left, according to eyewitnesses, with two cisgendered white men. Um, One Rita had known. Um, for a few years, and then the other she had not known. But nonetheless, witnesses saw those two leaving with Rita on the evening of November 28th, 1998. Well, around 6.20, just 20 minutes after leaving the bar, a noise begins to happen. This muffled, these screams, this, this panic of concern Neighbors hear Rita screaming um, in fear of her life. They call the police and the police get there. Finding Rita stabbed 20 times throughout her entire body. She was still alive at the time that she, uh, at the time the paramedics arrived. And she was immediately, and I mean, you know, and this is where some of that truth and fiction comes in at because there's been reports where they have been stated that she was immediately taken care of by the paramedics. And then there's been reports where um, it took a while for them to get in there to um, even get to Rita and treat her. Some of this is also due to the area that Rita lived in. Um, so, of course, we know this is the late 90s. Um, you know, a lot of areas, depending on where you're at, um, paramedics were definitely a little more um, suspicious. And then, of course, when we think of the victim herself, a Black trans woman in her early 30s, um, it was just really, really such a shocking case. And so, you know, as we go through this case again, welcome my audience. Thank you all for being here with me this Saturday. Um, And this episode, again, season two, episode six, The Murder of Rita Hester, is going to be discussing uh, the birth of a movement. And this movement is called the Transgender Day of Remembrance Movement. 
as we know, this is the month of November and this today is Transgender Day of Remembrance. And so again, we want to just take a moment and remember Rita. And we also want to take a moment and acknowledge that Rita's hateful homicide was the catalyst for what we know um, throughout our community as trans folks, as well as our cis allies who may be joining us. Transgender Day of Remembrance, TDOR, occurs every Saturday, um, November 20th of each year. And so you can guarantee that this is going to be a time that community gets together to acknowledge those who are no longer here. But we also have a whole entire week called Trans Awareness Week that begins November 13th and ends around November 19th. So it gives you a lot of information on the community as a whole, what the trans identity looks like, how we express, um, statistics, you name it, um, just amazing people who do a lot of work in the community. Um, and then of course, those who are no longer here um, for Transgender Day of Remembrance. You know, as we go through this case, again, Rita's case is is really heartbreaking because you just, you think of the life that she had and how her life was cut so short. Just, you know, a few within 30 minutes of leaving a bar, you know, having a good time, you know, um, following Black Friday and she is murdered, stabbed 20 times. The interesting thing you know about Rita's case is that when you go through the crime scene and and we have to really delve into that because unfortunately Rita's case still remains unsolved to this day Um, you're looking at almost 25 years and there's still no justice for Rita at the crime scene when paramedics did finally go in um, and they did remove Rita's body and she was transported to the hospital where she was later pronounced dead. The investigators um, for the Boston Police Department specifically noticed that there were no signs of forced entry. They also noticed that there was nothing stolen from Rita's apartment. And again, there weren't technically any suspects. While there were two men and one of them were interviewed, um, the one that specifically knew Rita, and he stated that they just walked her home. that they never went inside of Rita's home. So again, um, they took, the law enforcement took the word of um, this friend of Rita's acquaintance. And um, and that was Ed. His, his identity um, has remained anonymous and we do not know exactly who that friend was. Um, and because of the nature of the crime, the violence, um, he has decided to, you know, of course, continue his anonymity. So it's very important that we respect that and honor that. Um, but at the same time, acknowledging that we do not know the full scope of this friend's involvement. So um, we're just not quite sure where that stands. But nonetheless, Rita's case is still unsolved. And it's just really important to go back into that day, that Saturday, November 28th. The birth of a movement, and, and you know, again, I want to give you all again this idea of transgender remembrance and the goal. Um, as we heard in the beginning, um, that the case with Rita stems and um, it catalyzed the Transgender Day of Remembrance movement, it's very important that we understand what is Transgender Day of Remembrance. What exactly is TDOR? Why do we celebrate this? 
Um, an individual by the name of Nancy Mandroni, um, a huge trans advocate and activist in Massachusetts around the time that she was typically the guru for um, law enforcement would go to in, in Boston uh, specifically or Massachusetts for, uh, I guess, like a bit a liaison sort of community member that they could reach out to and get resources and input from. And so Nancy serves as that still to this day. She's also on the steering committee for a lot of great things out there in Massachusetts. But one of the things that really pulled her um, when the investigators brought her in regarding Rita's case was to really get an understanding of who Rita was, this, this violence against trans women of color, especially black trans women. But then also how do we acknowledge this, this this epidemic, this pandemic, this violence, this trend. And so Nancy, along with others, um, came up with this remembering of the dead. Um, we know, especially in other cultures, this is very common to remember our fallen. And so Nancy wanted to make sure that that was included in um, and, and, and a tradition for for our trans community members who are no longer here. And that is how Transgender Day of Remembrance kickstarted. So we have to also go backwards a little bit, three years before the hateful homicide of Rita Hester into the hateful homicide of Chanel Pickett. Now, you may be asking yourself, Chanel Pickett, who is Chanel Pickett? Well, she is a 23-year-old Black trans woman who was murdered by a 30-plus-year-old white cisgendered man by the name of William Palmer on November 20th of 1995. Rita's death happened on November 28th of 1998. And as a result, you know, we have to take a look into how these cases correlate with each other. Uh, when Chanel was murdered on November 20th of 1995 by William Palmer, um, you know, Rita spoke up about this. She was very fearful, especially because the trial for um, William Palmer occurred in May of 1997. So just a little over a year before the hateful homicide of Rita Hester. But as you know, she followed this trial back in 1997, again, just a year prior to her hateful homicide. She really, really wanted to express her concerns for justice regarding Black trans women and how, and, and we've covered, you know, we're in two seasons and we've seen how some of these cases, especially cases like Chanel's and Rita's and others where there is no justice served. And so Rita's fear, you know, reviewing Chanel's case and also an interesting fact is that Chanel uh, was also a twin um, to a, a, had a twin sister by the name of Gabrielle Pickett, who was also a Black trans woman as well. And there's been rumors that um, Gabrielle was murdered in 2003, though there hasn't been any evidence to support that. And there hasn't been really much evidence of Gabrielle since around 2003. Um, but again, this gives you this context of where Rita was around the mid and late 1990s regarding her own safety as a Black trans woman following the Chanel Pickett um, homicide and then also unfortunately her own just 
three years and eight days after the, the hateful homicide of Chanel Pickett. So both of these cases really came together to increase and raise awareness for how we associate transgender remembrance. Both of these homicides occurred in November and they both um, resonated because they affected uh, a community that is often plagued most by the homicides, which is black trans women. And so, you know, Nancy Nangeroni and other um, wanted to make sure that, you know, Rita and Chanel and others, their names would be remembered. And so since, you know, the early 2000s, we have been remembering those who are no longer here through Transgender Day of Remembrance, through Remembering Our Dead. And this has continued to grow and expand into cities throughout the United States, throughout, you know, just throughout the country and it's been such a great great turn of events to see and though it doesn't apply to every state we know that there's still a lot of prejudice and discrimination towards trans people in states and there's state laws that have this in place so unfortunately TDOR is not um, you know acknowledged as you know really represented in every state, but it has grown in a lot of major cities to really have such a visibility that even those in smaller spaces and rural spaces, like myself from Alabama, born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, we would have still that that access to understanding what T-Door is. And so again, I'm very thankful um, to those who helped make T-Door not only just this idea, but an actual event that occurs every year year and it's occurring today. There are going to be amazing events honoring those who are no longer here today. I encourage each and every one of you to tune in. Um, If there's the city of West Hollywood, there's, you know, amazing T-Door events throughout the entire U.S. Please YouTube, Google, Facebook events, IG events, you can find something. This is a really great way to make sure that we are seeing the names of our siblings who are no longer here, and especially our Black trans women who are no longer here, our sisters, and again, myself who identifies as a Black trans woman, and seeing Rita's case, and hearing about Rita's case, and hearing about Chanel's case, like so many others. I can't help but personally feel pulled to this, and as an advocate for someone who speaks so heavily on T-Door and transgender remembrance and what it means to be visible as Black trans women. It is so important that we continue to say the names of Rita, Chanel, and those who are no longer here. And, you know, speaking of Chanel, I want to just take a moment and go into a little bit of context about Chanel Pickett's case, as well as her interaction with William Palmer. And again, tying that back into Rita Hester. So I'm going to share a little bit of audio with you all just to give you a little bit of context of how Rita was feeling, but also again, a little bit into the Chanel Pickett case. Their womanhood by the age of 13. At the age of 14, 
The mother found they were engaged with Sinner and turned her back on them, placing the two into foster care. Despite her bitterness towards her children, Gabrielle stated on the Judy Jones show that she had no ill will towards her mother. Without their mother, however, the twins decided to go into high school as young women, and for a time, they were popular. Their foster mother told their principal their assigned gender, and soon the word spread. Once they'd gotten around the school, the two were bullied harshly. The parents took up short-term jobs in order to save up for sex change operations. They began hormone therapy when they were around 20. Somewhere down the line, the two landed a job with Amy Winex, a telephone company that served mostly New York from 1984 to 1997. They worked in their sales department in Marlborough, Massachusetts in 1995. They were then transferred to Braintree. After a month, Chanel switched to the MIS department, and soon she felt like she was in high school again. In the MIS department, Chanel worked under Deborah Shea. It's unclear if Shea was abrupt with Chanel on first meeting, but Chanel felt uncomfortable around her boss. Eventually, Shea began to daily state that Chanel was a pre-op transgender woman. She spoke to Shea's supervisor, but she sided with Shea. Six weeks later, Chanel was fired. The excuse for her termination was an incident between her and Shia. A month afterward, Gabrielle left the company. Out of work, the sister decided to live off of boyfriends and admitted to turning a few tricks to make ends meet. They frequented gay bars in the Boston area, and this is where they met William Palmer. William Palmer was a 35-year-old computer programmer who frequented well-known such as Jackie's and the Play Limit. The Play Limit is where he was introduced to the Fifty Twins on November 20th, 1995. The three of them headed off immediately. Chanel at one point told Gabrielle that she thought Palmer may have wanted a relationship with her. They went back to Chanel's place and smoked crack together. But when Palmer couldn't convince Gabrielle to engage in a threesome with them, he and Chanel left to go to his place. His roommates will recall that he arrived at 3 or 3.30 a.m. At 5 a.m., they awoke the sounds of a struggle and an unfamiliar voice shouting religious epithets. Palmer shouted at her to be quiet, yelling that she quit the house. In other reports, he says neighborhood. The commotion didn't end. Soon there were loud screams and continuous pounding on the wall. Palmer's roommates remember hearing a muffled voice, then slowly diminished and almost still. The roommates asked Palmer if everything was okay and tried to get into his room. Palmer replied, I've got a crazy bitch in here, but I've got another control. The next morning, Chanel was unresponsive in Palmer's bedroom. While Palmer and his roommates talked and debated on what to do, no one called medical attention for picket. Sometime around lunch, Palmer called his lawyer who called the police. Palmer was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, but the defense argued that he didn't know Chanel was pretty up when they met. The defense continued that Chanel flew into a cocaine-induced rage when Palmer rejected her. Yet, witnesses testified that Palmer was a regular at gay bars. The medical examiner testified there were massive injuries to Chanel's throat, her face was beaten, and bedding may have been stuffed down into her throat. The examiner also concluded that the levels of cocaine found in her body were too low to have contributed to her death. Palmer himself stated that he hit Chanel and sat on her for 10 minutes before going to bed. The official cause of death is strangulation, and Palmer
Palmer's trance panic defense, Lessman's verdict. He was found guilty of assault and battery on May 3rd, 
typically, again, very feminine. You could hear in some of the audio that she was 6'2", very bubbly. No one had a bad thing to say about her. Um, and then around the age of 22, and she moved to Boston. And so that is where she really thrived. And again, you heard where she performed at Jackie's and other spaces like that. And so, you know, like so many of us as Black trans women, you know, if we do not get access to employment, then survival sex is what we turn to. And so Rita, Chanel, many others, you know, won't be the first, but this is what happens. And this is why, again, it is so important that we tell Rita's story and Chanel's story so that way we can start to reduce this this employment disparity that we see so that way our trans women of colors, our trans folks of color are not unemployed and therefore and, and if you and, and if survival sex is what you want to do, absolutely go right ahead. But if it isn't Right, we need to make sure that we as a community, as an entire community, can do our part to raise awareness to show that how our trans community members are being discriminated against for jobs and therefore are turning to survival sex in order to have an income. And then of course we see far too often this ripple effect of homicide and then this panic defense, like in William Palmer's case. And even though we don't even know who committed the hateful homicide of Rita, if they had been found and captured and tried, would they have pled the same? Because we know that this has happened in other cases. Um, and then of course at this time in the late 90s, these early 2000s, we have to also take a look into the fact that there was no law for trans people, especially when it came to hate crime. Rita's case, um, again, this is 1998. So to give you a little concept or context, excuse me, into another one of our fallen members of the community at that time was Matthew Shepard, a white cisgendered gay male. His case happened in October of 98, just about six weeks before the hateful homicide of Rita Hester. I bring this up because it was mentioned in a few articles um, comparing the two cases. And we've seen this often, right, when we think of cases of race and identity. And so Rita's case is no different. She identified as a Black trans woman. And unfortunately, her case did not garner the same attention in 1998 as Matthew Shepard's A White Cis Gay Man. And so we have to take a look into the awareness that goes into cases. And again, that's why Trans Awareness Week is so pivotal. That's why we do it from November 13th, really until I will say the 21st, just because even including at T-Door. But because when we have Rita's case, we have Chanel's case, you know, we have this time of year, the holiday, and how so many times our community don't get to celebrate that with family. So really Trans Awareness Week is an encompass of remembering those who are no longer here, raising awareness for those who are here and the, and the stigma and the statistical data that supports the stigma and discrimination that we face. All of that is part of Trans Awareness Week. And all of that is important as to why Rita's case became the birth of a movement, this trans awareness movement that we see that is still very much strong 20 years later, getting stronger every generation, like myself and others um, after Rita, who are here to continue to make sure that our stories are being told, that the voices are being told, and that awareness is being made. 
So again, just giving you all a little bit of context into that. She was just two days shy. She would have turned 35 that Monday, the 30th. And so, you know, Rita was already getting ready to plan her 30th. She planned her 35th birthday. She was actually going to do a birthday gathering with some friends, um, which was one of the reasons why she went out on the 28th was to do like an early celebration with her friend Brenda. And then she was also going to do like a, a the following weekend, like a birthday gathering as well the first um, weekend of December. So she had already started to kind of kickstart her birthday weekend when this hateful homicide happened again on Saturday, November 28th, 1998 at 6.20 p.m. And as we, you know, again, go into this case a little bit more, you, you take a look into the response time. I mentioned earlier about these disparities and the the support of Rita's care. Was she provided the ad, adequate care that she so desperately needed? Um, do we, can we say for sure if this would have saved her life? We cannot, right? 20 stab wounds is very, very traumatizing to the body. So we can, you know, speculate that, you know, the, she may have still passed. But regardless, we still have to factor in the fact that Rita, according to some witnesses, laid there bleeding out for quite a, be- a period of time. And the 911 call came in around 6.25 p.m. So really just within a few minutes of hearing the 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 commotion the the violence that was ensuing and then of course when authorities do finally enter the home and from what we understand from some witnesses the back door was opened so there was no meat and they had you know placed this perimeter around the home and so there really was no reason why according to the witnesses, why paramedics couldn't have just went through the back door and rendered aid, um, or at least tried to render aid a lot sooner. But apparently they went through the front door and then, you know, it just took longer and then they discovered her gender identity. And so, and we're gonna talk about another case that's loosely similar to this, but a little bit more into, we have to get into cases where we talk about what happens when a victim is trans and then the medical staff does not provide care, especially when that victim has been the victim of violence, homicidal violence, um, battery, you know, assault. And so when law enforcement and paramedics, we, we know already with law enforcement how the response can be, but when we think about the paramedics and being able to render aid, is that being applied to those who are members of the trans community? And unfortunately, in Rita's case, and like so many um, cases, even still to this day, there is a lot of discrimination that happens. There are some medical practices that practice religious reasons as to why they don't render aid to people. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but nonetheless, we do know based on a couple of those witnesses that Rita laid bleeding, she was still alive and when she was discovered. There was blood everywhere throughout the entire living room and kitchen, um, though again, there was nothing stolen. 
But um, again, she made her life in Boston. She loved to perform at Jackie's. Um, she had traveled to Greece before. She had a cat in a boa constrictor. She was also known for just not being the tidiest person. So her home was sometimes in a disarray. Um, and then she just, you know, lived on the first floor of her apartment on Parkville Avenue. And again, in the Boston Allison's neighborhood. And so she had a really good friend, Brenda Wynn, who was just such a big support. And they had just, you know, went and had a good time earlier that day, watched some television, figure skating. They had also went and played some racquetball. And we're going to go out and just do some dancing on a Saturday night to celebrate Rita's 35th birthday. Um, and then, of course, as we know, Brenda wasn't able to make it. There were two cis white men who accompanied Rita back to her home. And then, as I mentioned earlier, one of the um, men had mentioned that they just walked Rita to her door. They never went inside. So then the theory would be that Rita was basically ambushed. If there was no forced entry, if they were not the ones who went into the home with her, then the killer must have either came in through the back door prior to Rita's arrival or either arrived as Rita arrived. Based off of the ear witnesses, neighbors who also heard what was going on, it apparently sounded like Rita was surprised. So again, that could be interpreted as the door being kicked in, even though neighbors didn't hear a door being kicked in. Um, they did hear, you know, muffles and, and, and a lot of movement in the unit and screaming, but they did not necessarily hear a kicking of either door. So again, the really the, the, the most logical assumption would be that Rita came home if we go off what the other, what her friend said, that Rita was dropped home by, by these two men, she walks in to her home where she's ambushed and stabbed 20 times. She's ambushed. Again, remember, Rita stands at six foot two. So we have to also factor into the likelihood of someone being able to just intimidate, but then also being able to just take down Rita on their own. So again, there is also an added element of more than one person being involved in this hateful homicide. And that is where it ties back into those two men, right? And then going back into what we mentioned earlier, and, and this is very important. And I know sometimes my audience, we get a little touchy about race, but this is why I always preface with racial identities because it's so important to understand how all of these intersectionalities tie into who we are as people, also how we're treated, and, and even in, in, in cases how justice is served. And so again, some of the speculation, even from some witnesses, have been that the two men who brought Rita home were the actual killers. And because they are white cis men, that is very similar to William Palmer's case where, you know, the charges would be reduced and or if they would even be found guilty. Um, so that is kind of a little bit of speculation that has happened within these 20 years of the hateful homicide of Rita Hester. But, you know, again, as you know, we, we just think about this case and, and we've talked about this. It's so important to really understand what our community has been through um, and what we continue to go through. And that's why it's so important that we continue to raise awareness this month of November uh, with Trans Awareness Week, with Transgender Remembrance, remembering Rita Chanel. Also acknowledging just, you know, in a, in a few days, in 10 days, it will be Rita's 
birthday, she would have been 58. And so again, I just want to get ready to, we're going to prepare to conclude this case in just a moment, but I wanted to just give you all this idea of how Rita's case helped birth this movement of, of awareness of the violence, of the trauma that trans and gender non-conforming and gender expensive and intersex and indigenous people and that we all go through based on intersectionalities, on how we identify. And at any moment, at the snap of a finger, you know, your life can be taken just simply for being who you are. Rita walked into her home that evening, you know, that that fall evening, just few days after Thanksgiving, just a couple of days before her birthday in November 1998, when she was brutally stabbed 20 times throughout her entire body, laying on the floor for 30 minutes, bleeding out before paramedics ultimately was able to get her to the hospital where she was pronounced dead at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday, November 28th of 1998, in Austin, Massachusetts. I also just want to take one last moment and give you all a context of the, uh, just how Rita's death really impacted her family and the community. So I'm just going to share like a brief little clip from that. And then again, we'll prepare to conclude. If it don't just stop now, eventually it's going to be someone else. There are too many of us getting killed. He was Rita, and I respect him as Rita, and I've lost part of me. The killing must stop. It just hurts me. So I speak about him all the time in court every day. And I, it's such a great loss to me. I can't even hardly explain it. It's such a big loss that they can hardly explain it. The voice of Kathleen Hester, Rita's mother. Still, you know, 23 years later, she's still very much distraught and heartbroken by the death of her daughter, who also, you know, took references from Rita Garbo. So again, mother, sister, queen, legend, the the amazing woman who catalyzed this movement, Miss Rita Hester. We remember you. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Born November 30th, 1963, and has been resting on since November 28th, 1998. Again, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson, your host. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of A Hateful Homicide. Please follow us on Instagram at A Hateful Homicide. You can follow me at Mallory Jenna 90. Please also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify. And then you can also use the hashtags A Hateful Homicide, True Cry Podcast, Transgender Awareness, Trans Woman, Suspenseful Saturdays. Again, thank you so much. Please take a moment of silence and remember those who are no longer here. If you know someone of the community who's trans, if you are just learning about T-Door today, take a moment and remember Rita and those who are no longer here. And please help us continue to raise awareness so that way these murders can begin to stop. Thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for next Saturday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day.